0: Podcast. One of the most fundamental aspects of being human is our innate daily reliance on food to survive. The food we eat, of course, delivers essential nutrients to our bodies, it gives us the energy to perform our daily tasks, and it can also unite people of every cultural background around this universal need that we all share. But no matter what your dietary restrictions may be or what your preferences are, I think we can all agree that not all food is created equal. On a personal level, 16 years ago, I suffered a health scare and became motivated for the very first time to give up junk food and attempt to eat healthier. And that journey led to a profound and surprising discovery, which is that the more whole plant foods predominated my plate, the better I felt and the better I performed. This epiphany led me to adopting a 100% plant-based diet, which has served me better than well for the past 16 years. It's powered me through some of the world's most grueling endurance challenges and it continues to motivate me to evangelize its many benefits, all of which brings us to today. For the past year and a half, we here at the podcast have been doing quarterly episodes around a singular theme that we characterize and offer up as a masterclass. These compilation episodes are derived from multiple past guests, and we excerpt these guests' wisdom around a particular theme. For example, in past episodes of this series, we've covered addiction, we've talked about mental health, the gut microbiome, spirituality, and longevity. But today, we're gonna turn our attention to plant-based nutrition. To gain the greatest insight into this topic, my team and I have primarily turned to the most esteemed doctors and the most foremost experts in nutrition science that we've ever had on the show men and women who have direct experience with the impacts of a standard American diet, treatment protocols that include lifestyle changes toward plant fuel, the impact and reversal of serious cardiovascular diseases and issues. And of course, the evidence that being plant-based can and will have dramatically positive results for those that adhere to this lifestyle. And we're gonna begin today's masterclass with talking about the difficulties of getting started on a plant-based diet and why so many people, unfortunately, end up talking themselves out of this choice. And we're gonna have that conversation with the plant power doctor herself, Dr. Gemma Newman, but first. I'm super proud to announce Okay, Dr. Gemma Newman. Gemma is a senior partner at a family medical practice in the UK, where as part of her practice, she provides evidence-based nutrition and lifestyle advice to her patients. In this first clip, Gemma helps us answer tough questions like, how could we choose a lifestyle that is typically not widely socially accepted? And what is the right mindset in a relationship when one partner chooses to be plant-based and the other does not. Dr. Newman is uniquely suited to help answer these questions because she herself reluctantly came around to a plant-based lifestyle later in life and in her medical practice. So here we go. This is me and Dr. Gemma Newman. Perhaps even the bigger issue in stumbling block is really the social issue. Like people get all up in their heads about, what other people are gonna think about them, what's gonna happen when they go to Susie and Dave's you know, dinner party and they don't wanna make a fuss or I have to go on vacation with my neighbors and you know, it's just gonna be too problematic and people like relinquish their boundaries or you know, are, are just too afraid to stand up for themselves or to like make that conscious choice because they don't wanna be difficult.
1: Yeah, I can totally relate to that because that was my instinct first of all, when I started on this journey, my main thought was, oh, this is gonna be so awkward for everybody. People are gonna think this is so strange. You know, it's, I think as social creatures, it's one of the main considerations that a lot of people have. Um, And I guess it comes down to living in alignment with the things that you most want, Do you most want to be somebody that pleases others? Do you most want to be somebody that lives in alignment with things that are important to you? Are those things one and the same? If you can have a conversation with yourself around the values that you're living by, it becomes much easier to then make conscious choices that are in alignment to those values. So I would actually encourage everybody to have this conversation with their loved ones or even just with themselves. They could write it down in a journal, write down their top values in life and how their food choices can relate to those values. Mm -hmm. And then it becomes a lot easier because you're taking away a lot of the extra choices that you're having to make or the social situations that you're having to navigate because you are consciously living in alignment with the things that matter. So if it matters to you to minimize your risk of heart disease because you have a relative that died young, you want to see your children grow up, then you write that down and you find ways to make it work within that kind of framework, if you like, your values framework. Um, If animal compassion is important to you, it's probably a lot easier because you've already made that decision for another outside purpose. Mm -hmm. It's something that's outside of yourself. And perhaps the same can be true for someone that cares deeply about the environment and the planet. They've already made that decision based on a value that's so strong to them that it actually makes it a little bit easier to stick to. I think health overall is probably one of the first ways people go towards plant-based nutrition, but it's also one of the hardest ways to stick with it if that's your only goal, because it's quite Mm self-focused. Whereas if you can focus on something outside of self, then it potentially could make those choices a lot easier, either environmental health or animal compassion or reasons to stay healthy for others. It tends to be, in my experience, right. ways that make it stick a lot more.
0: Yeah, that's that's a really good way of thinking about it. One of the questions that I get all the time, I'm sure you do as well, is I wanna do this, but my partner doesn't want any part of it. And you began this journey, Richard was doing it ahead of you, two different dinners, meals, et cetera. Um, but for a lot of couples, that becomes very problematic, especially when those values might come into conflict with each other.
1: Yes, you're so right. and. I think my advice from that, being the partner that was most reluctant, perhaps I can speak to this more, Um, Mm -hmm. is the idea that what I needed was, um, was patience and time. And sometimes people will never come around. Sometimes the people you love the most will never want to do the things that are important to you when it comes to diet. And... I think that taking away that expectation is important because when you start to expect things of other people, that's where you can start to become very unhappy. You know, you have, it it builds kind of criticism in your mind. It builds comparison, uh, it builds expectation and that can be quite toxic for your relationship. So my best advice is just to do the thing that's making you happy do the thing that brings you in alignment with who you want to be and show your partner through your actions, how much happier, how much healthier um, and how much more abundant you feel in your life. Mm -hmm. And then if they wanna come along for the ride, they can.
0: Right, but you have to be detached from that expectation. Otherwise, You're going to be vibing them all the time, and then that piousness creeps up, and exactly. then it just becomes a disaster.
1: Exactly, you've got to let that go. Yeah, <laughs> that's you not just got to let that plan. go. Even if it's in the back, well, if I keep doing
0: this, they'll eventually come around. It's no, no. You got to like get rid of that.
1: I I do think that that's probably the best way for you to sustain a healthy relationship with the people that you love the most, and it's hard because often the people you love the most may you feel need it the most, especially mm-hmm. if they have a health condition that could benefit from doing that but you have to let it go because it's not your life, it's their right. life.
0: I mean, that's advice for this particular scenario, but for you know a, a, a zillion others as exactly. well, like in terms of like partnership dynamics.
1: Yeah, and in a partnership, you will often have expectations of a partner that are unspoken mm-hmm. and that could be true for any kind of scenario. Um, and that's not to say that you shouldn't communicate the things that are important to you, of course you should, but it's the expectation that is attached to that, which I think can become very negative in, in the relationship. So letting go of the expectations of your partner is probably uh, the key to a happier life in all sorts yeah. of
0: ways. Did Richard do that?
1: Yeah, he was very patient with yeah. me. <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, but that brings up an important issue, which is you know, somebody who's listening to this or watching it is thinking, well, th- my life is just gonna become infinitely more complicated. It means like we're gonna have to prepare two different meals. I'm gonna have to spend all this time in the kitchen. I'm gonna have to plan out everything in advance. It's probably gonna be expensive. And suddenly my life, which was kind of going along pretty good, suddenly gets hijacked by this new lifestyle habit that is gonna commandeer all my time, energy, and
1: money. Yeah, and those are valid, very valid concerns. And I guess what I'd say to that person is, you have to find the thing that helps you know Um, where you're going for the future. I think a lot of the time we kind of coast through and we do things because they are the path of least resistance. And sometimes the path of least resistance is a great path and it works and everything's going well. But sometimes over the course of maybe weeks, months to years, we start to notice actually this isn't really working for me anymore. You know, although this is the easier route, I'm not feeling this, Mm. I either don't feel healthy or there's something niggling me in in my conscience about things I wanna do differently. And sometimes changes do require a certain amount of forward thinking.
0: So the person who's sticking that seed into the soil right now and getting ready to water it, but doesn't know how to water it, like how do you think about the, the early phases of this. Like I'm somebody who went all in, that's just my personality type. I recognize most people aren't like that. Uh, I suspect you're somebody who would counsel people to make tiny changes, master them. Like how do you get somebody engaged in this and give them some actionable advice about how to begin in a very
1: practical manner? So number one is literally write down the foods that you buy in your weekly shop. Number two is write down all the foods that you make with those ingredients. And if you can find one meal a week that you'd like to have more plants in, then that can be your first step. Is literally just cook one meal a week that is plant-based and see how you feel. And then if that works for you, then you can cook another one. And then maybe cook another one. There's always a starting point for everybody. If you're somebody that just eats takeout, then you know what, for you, the best thing would be perhaps just to start with one home-cooked meal a week rather than trying to change everything. Just cook one meal at home rather than having all Mm -hmm. meals take out. Um, For my elderly patient who was just eating like small ready meals from the supermarket, switch to a plant-based one and see how you feel. See if it changes your health over time. So it's just, it is for a lot of people about those baby steps. Yeah. For others like you, they jump in and they'll get started and they'll figure it out along the way and they'll enjoy that process and that's great. But for most people, it's just little steps. And, you know, there was research by BJ Fogg to show that only one change is enough to then start changing, shifting that identity and then sort of adding in something new after that. So yeah, just one thing, one thing is Mm. all you need to do.
0: It's one thing to go vegan. It's another thing to go strictly whole food, plant-based. And then optimizing your plant-based diet for things like health, longevity, and athletic prowess is yet another thing altogether. So let's better understand this. And to do that, we should talk to an expert, shouldn't we? About the early stages of your adoption of this lifestyle, some of the things that you should be made aware of, that you should focus on and you should include in this adaptation to this new way of eating and living. So to do that, we're gonna talk to the brilliant Simon Hill, my friend who is a nutrition science expert, he's an author, a restaurateur, he is a fellow podcaster, just a fountain of practical knowledge that can benefit the newly reformed as well as the more seasoned plant-based advocate among us. So let's say, okay, Simon, I've been eating a plant-based diet for six months or a year. Um, How do I know I'm doing it right? What are some of the common things that trip people up or where they go astray Mm -hmm. before they have kind of the full, you know, encyclopedic knowledge of how Mm -hmm. to do this properly?
2: There's probably two or three main things that I've identified anyway, in in working with many people who are going through this and also through my own experience and, and talking to people like you. I think the first is understanding when you're minimizing or removing these animal foods that we have grown accustomed to eating all the time, what do you replace them with? Because there's a lot of different options. Everything from black beans and lentils to very processed uh, vegan foods. Mm -hmm. Uh, The second would be understanding the difference between an animal-based diet and a plant-based diet in terms of Calorie density. So, uh, animal foods are typically much more calorie dense. And therefore, if you're wanting to eat a similar number of calories, your plate needs to look fuller right. <laughs> when it's plant based food. I mean,
0: that's a pretty common thing that you hear like, oh, I tried it, but I was starving all the time.
2: Yes. And that is something that I personally experienced. So, as I was making these changes, I was not fully cognizant of the differences in calorie density. Mm -hmm. And I I was experiencing in in the very beginning of my transition, a little drop in energy. And I I was doubting whether the plant-based foods were working for me. And really it was just that I was not consuming enough overall calories. Mm -hmm. So understanding what to replace animal foods with, calorie density. And then the third I'd say is having a general awareness of Specific nutrients of focus. So, all diets, whether it's an omnivorous diet or a plant based diet, need to be appropriately planned or they can fall short. And, you know, if we look around uh, at our current sort of state of health, the, the omnivorous diet's not really serving us that well. It has mm-hmm. a number of holes and gaps. And while a plant based diet can really improve your overall disease risk profile, and we spoke a lot about that in terms of shifting these biomarkers in a favorable direction, your cholesterol, your blood glucose control, um, inflammation, blood pressure, and lower your risk of these chronic diseases that are plaguing our society. At the same time, there are a few nutrients that you need to be aware of so that you are getting them in the the required amounts Mm -hmm. to not just prevent your risk of these chronic diseases long-term, but to really optimize yourself and, and feel at your best in your day-to-day.
0: So the obvious next question being, what are those nutrients? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh,
2: so I, I call these nutrients of focus. And I think that's a positive spin on nutrients of concern. And I just, I want people, I wanna draw people's attention to them. In the book, I write about eight of these. And some of these are quite easy to get through your diet and or fortified foods, and then others are best uh, accessed through a supplement. So as a list, these are vitamin B12, Mm -hmm. vitamin D, omega-3 fatty acids, iodine, iron, calcium, zinc, and selenium. right? Right, so given that
0: a skeptic would say, well, if I have to pay extra close attention to these things, or I have to go outside of my food that I'm consuming and supplement, then this must be a deficient diet by definition. Mm
2: -hmm. I think we need to zoom out a little bit and understand that nutritional gaps are nothing new. And it's the very reason that folate and iodine have been used throughout the food system, fortifying foods to prevent iodine deficiency and folate deficiency in the general public. So this idea of fortification or supplements is nothing new. And lots of those nutrients I just reeled off like zinc, selenium, iron, calcium, you can easily access them through your diet. You don't need to supplement those. It's just a matter of understanding what foods do you want to be incorporating in your diet regularly. and. For example, if you're choosing a plant-based milk to swap out dairy, which is rich in calcium, what should you be looking for? Mm -hmm. Uh, And what we should be worried most about is heart health outcomes. So I I have nothing against a diet that includes some supplementation, if that means the best outcomes for, be it for myself or, or anyone that I'm working with and and that is what the data suggests if you want to move down this path of very plant rich plant predominant diets or even plant exclusive to lower your your risk of chronic disease then taking some of these supplements is going to allow you to do that in a more optimal manner right
0: An early advocate and practitioner of preventative medicine long before it was trendy, Dr. Dean Ornish is an absolute legend in the plant-based nutrition movement for his groundbreaking work in the holistic prevention and reversal of chronic lifestyle diseases. His vast experience and deep wisdom are perfect primers for those curious about the benefits of a whole food plant-based lifestyle, and uh, he's here today, so let's hear from him.
3: Well, first of all, unfortunately, because I debated Dr. Atkins so many times and he was the low-carb guy, I got pegged as the low-fat guy. Our program has never just been about fat. It's really about a whole foods, plant-based diet that's low in fat and sugar and stress management, moderate exercise and what we call social support, which is really love and intimacy Mm -hmm. or eat well, move more, stress less, love more. You know, that's it. Um, But even the idea of fat, the problem was, number one, You know, people say, oh, Americans have been told to eat less fat, you know, we're fatter than ever, low fat is dead, it's all sugar. But we may have been told to eat less fat. But I went to the US Department of Agriculture uh, database because they keep track of the entire food supply, not what people say they're eating but what they're actually eating. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes there's a big discrepancy and what we found is that in every decade since 1950, We may have been told to eat less fat, but we're eating a lot more fat, 67% more fat, more sugar, more meat, and more calories. More of everything. More of everything. So not surprisingly, we're fat, not because we're eating too little fat, but because we're eating too much of everything.
0: Yeah, so the idea is that that it's not that the low-fat thing didn't work, it's that people didn't actually
3: do it. And the other thing is besides getting more fat is people, when they did replace fat, they would replace it with sugar. So mm-hmm. you have the snack well cookies and you know, the Entenmann's cakes and things like that, and that's not a good choice. Right. But I think if you actually look at all of the data, there's more evidence than ever that an optimal diet is low in fat and low in sugar. It's predominantly fruits, vegetables, whole grains, legumes, soy products in their natural forms. And we've been doing studies for 40 years, so... You know, having been in all these different diet wars and diet debates, I said, you know, look, I'm done. Mm -hmm. You know, we've done... Every study that we've done has shown that um, these same lifestyle changes can reverse heart disease. We're able to show that for the first time. Type 2 diabetes, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, obesity. Uh, we're doing a, a, the first randomized trial now to see if we can actually reverse Alzheimer's disease. We found that when you change your lifestyle, it changes your genes, you know, hundreds of genes, over 500 genes in three months, turning on the good genes, turning off the bad genes in just three months. We found that uh, in a study we did, we published that with Craig Venter, who uh, first to the human Mm -hmm. genome. We did a study with Elizabeth Blackburn who got the Nobel Prize for discovering telomeres, the ends of our chromosomes that regulate how long we live. We've showed for the first time that in just three months we can increase telomerase, the enzyme that repairs and lengthens telomeres, by 30%. And over a five-year period, we showed again for the first time, we can actually lengthen telomeres, in a sense reversing aging at a cellular level. So the more diseases we study and the more underlying mechanisms we look at, the more reasons we have to explain why these simple changes are so powerful and how quickly people can get better these things are so much more dynamic than we once realized that when you eat this way your brain gets more blood flow you can actually grow so many new brain neurons in just a few weeks your brain gets bigger and particularly those parts of your brain like the hippocampus that control memory uh that you want to get bigger you know when people get older they say like you know Mm -hmm. what was where i leave my keys and what was that person's name a lot of that's reversible uh your skin gets more blood so you don't age as quickly your heart gets more blood we found you can reverse heart disease your sexual organs get more blood flow and when people realize that it's not just about living longer, it's about feeling better and improving the quality of life. It really reframes that debate from you know, fear of dying, which is not sustainable, to joy of living and feeling good and pleasure, which really are. Right. What is the difference between how the body
0: metabolizes
3: animal protein versus
0: plant protein, or is it like the saturated fat and cholesterol that generally is conjoined with the intake of animal protein?
3: Well, animal protein... Uh, is is harmful and plant-based protein is not only not harmful, it's actually protective. There are literally hundreds of thousands of substances and fruits and vegetables and whole grains and legumes and soy products that have anti-cancer, anti-heart disease, and anti-aging properties. Things like phytochemicals, bioflavonoids, carotenoids, retinols, isoflavones, genocine, lycopene, there's a whole alphabet soup of these things. And where do you find them? With few exceptions, you find them in, in plant-based foods. The animal-based foods, besides being high in saturated fat and dietary... I mean, you only get dietary cholesterol in animal products, um, is the animal protein itself is inflammatory. And in our new book, part of what the, this kind of unifying theory that we're putting together for the first time is, why is it that these same lifestyle changes are so powerful? The more diseases we study, the more underlying mechanisms we look at, the more reasons we have to explain why these changes are so powerful. And it's because although we tend to think of heart disease as being different than diabetes, different than prostate cancer, and different than Alzheimer's disease, and so on, the radical idea here, is these, this unifying theory, is that they're not. They're different expressions of the same underlying disorders mm-hmm. the, the mechanisms like chronic inflammation oxidative stress over some stimulation of the sympathetic nervous system changes in the microbiome changes in as we've been talking about in gene expression in telomeres and angiogenesis and each of these mechanisms in turn is affected by what we eat how we respond to stress how much exercise we get and how much love and support we have and so seen in this larger context the animal protein activates all of these different mechanisms in negative ways, which is what makes it harmful, independent of the fact that it's also high in saturated fat, dietary cholesterol, and other things like that. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like people say, oh, I'm not going to get enough protein on a, on a plant-based diet. Then you say, well, ask Mr. Elephant, you know, yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, or uh, ask Rich Roll. <laughs> I mean, you're, you're a living <laughs> example of, of what can be done on a plant-based diet. I mean, most guys would be uh, happy to do half of what you can do.
0: My next guest may not have invented the whole food plant-based diet, but he is certainly the regal line of the movement. He's a guy who pioneered it from fringe acceptance all the way to widespread mainstream adoption. Of course, I can only be referring to the one, the only, T. Colin Campbell, the man best known for writing an incredible book called The China Study, which to date is one of the most important, groundbreaking, massively best-selling books ever written on health and nutrition. This is excerpted from a conversation we recorded many years ago, so I'm very excited and proud to resurface this clip, this excerpt, between me and T. Colin Campbell on the power of a plant-based diet.
4: It really, coming back to the question concerning animal protein, I mean, that had been a lifelong or career-long question because we were able to, in the prior studies, we were able to show that we could turn on and turn off cancer just simply by feeding, of all things, the protein of cow's milk, which brought me back to the dairy farm in a sense. Mm -hmm. Um, And that was very provocative, to say the least. Mm -hmm. Um, And And,
0: and I think it's, you know, there might be a perspective out there that you were out to, you know, sort of prove, to establish an objective that you already believed in. But you're coming from this dairy farm background, and it had been your whole, you know, the, the conviction of your entire upbringing that, you know, milk does a body good that this is the perfect food right so where did you start to begin to see kind of cracks in the
4: in the firmament of that concept well it was the initial observation i think we did with the the the, uh, there were some indian researchers who had done some laboratory animal studies that showed that at the time that i was in the philippines and but they didn't believe what they got Uh, It was published in an obscure journal, but I kind of believed it because it was consistent with what I was seeing with the children. Um, And so, as we went into that research, we looked at it in great depth, and I had become convinced, you know, by that time, we we did it so many different ways, Mm -hmm. that animal protein actually increases cancer risk, period. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so, I was really interested to know in the China study whether there was any evidence for that. And. My, my bias was to find the opposite, right? Really was I mean if I, if I had a prejudice, in the I guess and cruel. that's
0: a very important point. you know, I think that that you weren't out to, you know, sort of be on this crusade uh, to uh, you know, with this foregone conclusion that you already had in your mind. you went out and you surveyed right. a gigantic population of people across innumerable variables and remained open-minded and uh, to take what you just said, hopeful that maybe it might prove the opposite.
4: That's right. Absolutely, I I was always kind of swimming upstream against my own sort of prior prejudices. Mm -hmm. But finally, the evidence was overwhelming uh, with respect to, for starters, with the effect of animal protein on encouraging the development of, of cancers, if you will. But then there were other questions that arose, too, at the same time. And always having this doubt, you know, about the significance of this, we would would want to ask broader questions. What if we eat animal protein-containing foods? What about all the other nutrients that come along with it? Mm -hmm. What's happening there? Do they cancel each other? So we started investigating other nutrients, other cancers, other diseases. And the more that I looked, the more consistent became the data. Mm -hmm. Everything seemed to all the nutrients in animal-based foods as opposed to all the nutrients in plant-based foods, they seemed to be doing opposite things. And, and their activities were sort of mutually supportive you know, at the biochemical and physiological level. Mm-hmm. So the story became, for me, even ever more impressive. It was, uh, but it was always coming from a position, in my case, in a sense someone was trying to disprove Right. You know, what I had observed. And this is, this is a, a, a landmark
0: discovery, right? This, is, this had never been sort of established or presumed
4: or even conjured by anyone prior to you. It's an interesting question, and I'll come on it in just a minute. But yes, when we were doing all the research in the laboratory, and because of my skepticism about a lot of things, what we ended up discovering were a lot of fundamental ideas that were against the rules Mm-hmm. against what I was teaching and against what was in the books. Such as? Well, for example, turning cancer on and off by nutritional means.
5: Mm-hmm. I
4: mean, that was a big deal. Uh, and that, it, it turned out we didn't do it just with protein and liver cancer. We also did it with dietary fat and pancreatic cancer and things like this. So that that phenomenon of thinking about the causation of cancer and later other diseases as a result of simply modifying you know, nutrient intake and, mm-hmm. and and the idea of actually reversing disease. Right, it's the turning. We off were reversing part. disease. Yeah, and and cancer. I thought this is incredible, and so we are learning other things too, like um, that the relationship between nutrition and genes. A lot of people think, and a lot of people still think that somehow genes predetermine whether or not we're going to get a certain kind of disease, mm-hmm. and what we are showing, no, it's not the case. We can have the genes to cause it to start the initiation of events, but that is, we can control it by nutritional means. Big thing. Another one, uh, sort of principle like, if you will, an, an A, like protein. It causes cancer, let's say for starters. One of the things that I was really being pushed to do to prove my point was to find what the mechanism was, you know, which enzyme, which this, which mm-hmm. that, and so we started looking for the mechanisms. And I had a series of PhD students spending four or five years, each of them looking at a mechanism. And it turned out there is no such thing. So that Mm -hmm. was another myth that I was all of a sudden running across too. And so a lot of the things that we we learned really were, I think, the result of my skepticism. Mm
6: -hmm.
0: Who's next? My friend, Dr. Michael Greger is next. That's who Dr. Greger, for those that don't know, is one of the preeminent authorities on the plant-based lifestyle and plant-based nutrition. He's the man behind the Nutrition Facts website, which is an incredibly robust resource for searching for the latest, most up-to-date information on a vast spectrum of medical, nutritional, and lifestyle topics. He's also the wildly best-selling author of books, including How Not to Die and How Not to Diet, Uh, He is an incredible communicator of nutritional information. I love him to death. So here is a clip between me and Dr. Michael Greger. What is a day in your personal life with food? Like how do you make it work? Well, on the,
7: ra- well, uh, yeah. The, uh, my travel air- years, yeah, planes. travel years are real time. And how do you deal with the airports you, yeah. and all of that? Yeah, airport food courts. Yeah, well, look, it's getting easier. Now you can get like brown rice in an airport. I mean, that's great. Mm. Like these, like, you know, fast casual places. Like, I, you know, things you never expect to see before. And look, there's, you know, I, I've grown better, you know, if I can, you know, land someplace and find Whole Foods and have a hot bar and I can grab some food. And, you know, first few days I have snacks and then slowly it's all gone. You know what I've been doing recently is... I we tell the organizers you got to bring me food. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, there's only so many Put microwaves. it in the rider. There's only so many sweet potatoes well, I can Craig get on my plane. He's the guy with the crazy rider. Right,
0: right. right. Who does he think not he has, only, Van Halen. Not only no green yeah. M and
7: M's, no M and M's. Period. <laughs> it's know. all right. Um, and so right. And so look, I you know I need to. I yeah. Mm-hmm. And typically, I don't even have time. Even if I could, I mean. Right, even if there's healthy food around, here I am, Southern California, I can get healthy food, but I don't have time. I mean, it's just- And on the rare days good. that you're at home. Oh, now then, once I have control over my life- I love life, how excited you are. And, no, that's a beautiful thing. <laughs> I, well, yeah. I mean, I just, yeah, this is my first day of this this few week stint. Uh-huh. And so I'm, I'm feeling the, the, the leaving home thing. It was, it was, it was hard to, to get up this morning. But um, yeah, then I can eat this beautiful diet. Oh my, and it's like, it's it's like a, it's like a, it's like a game, like how healthy can I get? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's really, um, and, uh, and you know what helps? So I do a lot of food delivery, like Whole Foods delivery. Mm -hmm. And then, then you're not even tempted to buy junk because it's not in front of you, grab And so it's like everything I eat. So my house just has healthy food. And so if you get hungry enough, you're gonna eat an apple, right? I mean, there's nothing, you will eventually eat that apple, right? And so with only healthy stuff, you know, I can I can build up my my healthy immune system. Always making that healthy the
0: healthy uh, choice the 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 most convenient.
7: Right. Oh yeah, I could go out in the in the in the Philadelphia winter and bike someplace to get something, <laughs> to bike to the donut shop. But so much easier when I have a fridge full of yummy food.
0: And do you prepare stuff ahead of time? Uh, I do a lot of batch cooking, yeah,
7: yeah, yeah. um, particularly now I'm doing a lot of this this prebiotic mix. I talked about my uh, when I, in studying the improving your, uh, uh, microbiome for the new big uh-huh. microbiome chapter in the in the diet book, um, and just learning how again how important microbiome is and where are the most concentrated source of prebiotics and so I, I I discovered sorghum for the first time, discovered all these weird millets that I had no idea that have poorly digested starch and so they are fed to animals, but poorly digested starch is exactly what we want because mm-hmm. it's poorly digested in our small intestine makes it down to our lower intestine where our good gut bugs can have a bounty of prebiotics and then has all those knock-on benefits. And so that's the kind of thing where I just insta pot a huge amount and just, you know, Tupperware in the fridge um, and, you know, take out one every day as soon as it's over. And, you know, so I always have, uh, always have my intact grains and a whole bunch of wonderful black lentils. And then it's a matter of just getting greens in the house.
0: What else did you learn about the gut biome in prepping for this What's neat is now we have these interventional
7: trials. So we've always known. So flashback a few years ago, it was a black hole, almost no pun intended, where, because most gut bugs are actually unculturable in laboratory conditions. Like, we can't grow them outside of the human colon. We don't know what the gas, or we don't mm-hmm. know. And so, it, we black, black, we had no idea what was going on there until we had genetic fingerprinting techniques. And all of a sudden, for the first time, we'd be like, oh, okay, we can actually track people's microbiome over time, compare people's different microbiomes, and we can correlate diseases with, um, uh, with different uh, bugs in our gut and change people's diets, change the microbiome, see the beneficial or adverse effects, but... That's the problem. If you improve someone's diet, all of a sudden you give people lots of whole grains and legumes, uh, beans, split peas, chickpeas, and lentils, lots of prebiotics, they get these beneficial changes in their microbiome, and all of a sudden they have amazing health benefits. Uh, yeah, but you just fed them a whole bunch of healthy food. How do we know microbiome has anything to do with it? That's where fecal transplants come along, right? Then we can <laughs> prove it's the microbiome because we can take those gut bugs and put it into somebody who's continuously a crappy diet and see if we can get those same metabolic benefits. And that's what we're seeing. so we're seeing, um, yeah, so, you know, someone gets a fecal transplant from someone who's overweight, all of a sudden they start packing on pounds, eating the same food. Um, or there's... That's crazy. Mental health changes, um, all sorts of crazy things. Um, and and then we can prove it's the gut bug. Now, what happens is, of course, it's temporary because, right? You you if infuse the conce- gut bugs, yeah, but then you keep starving it. them by not eating any fiber, and then they die away. But you see, uh, initially, those same benefits. Of course, you got to feed those good gut bugs, or they're going to mm-hmm. die off. But but so so what went from a from a correlation science? Now we have a causation science. Um, and it's just fascinating that we can transfer the benefits of healthy diet. So, so I mean, so the the black market rich roll stool. You could, I mean, you know, the 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 the. Right. the I mean, yeah. Start selling that shit. It's
0: exactly. <laughs> right? I mean, who wouldn't pay? It is. It is fascinating. I mean, the links to cravings as well, like oh, cra- the, yeah. the nature Amazing. of the gut flora impacts the foods that you Immunity. crave. Uh,
7: yeah. 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 Yeah.
0: And. It it also, I think, is, is because it's so complex that it's rife for confusion and people kind of making claims about what you should and you shouldn't do that we don't necessarily have the ability to really back up at this point
7: particularly this kind of personalized nutrition, like people all the time are sending me things. My, I, I sent my stool sample in to this company and gave me back a thing and said, I should be eating this and I shouldn't be eating this. We don't have that the kind of granularity. It does not. Same thing with the DNA testing, mm-hmm. right? People that get back their, their genome and say, oh, well, I, you know, I'm whatever. I shouldn't be eating the X, Y, and Z. We don't have that kind of. Um, uh, but is it true we should be
0: eating fermented foods and we should be eating, you know, nutritionally a variety of nutritionally dense foods to be kind of seeding that that gut flora with a diversity of of, of bacteria? So it's
7: the three, right? So it's prebiotics, probiotics, and polyphenols, mm-hmm. which are these kind of uh, tend to be brightly colored pigments in fruits and vegetables. These are kind of the three uh, the three things that that benefit a good mi- a microbiome, and you can use all three of them or just two of them. I mean, the problem with probiotics, is you take them and then they just die off, you don't continue to eat healthy. And so if you just have like antibiotic associated diarrhea or something, you, you wipe out your good gut, uh-huh. gut bugs, then I see a therapeutic role of something like probiotics. But otherwise taking probiotics is useless because they'll just die off. If you put them in the same environment that didn't grow good gut bugs in the first place, putting in some good acidophilus, they're just gonna die off because you're not feeding the acidophilus because good gut bugs are by definition fiber feeders, resistant starch eaters. These are, I mean, that, that's, that, that's what makes good gut bugs grow. Um, and so, what we really need is we just need to feed our good gut bugs, prebiotics. And people are like, "Oh, I eat so many fruits and vegetables," but must realize fruits and vegetables are almost all water. Like, you know, uh, fruits are like 80% water, or some water-rich vegetables, 90, 95% water. They're water in vegetable form, not actually a lot of fiber. You can actually have a pretty deficient, fiber-deficient diet if you're not including whole grains and legumes, some of these drier mm. um, uh, foods um, into your daily diet. Wow.
0: What can we learn from one of the leading weight loss surgeons in the country? Well, next up is Dr. Garth Davis. Garth is a friend, he's a multiple podcast guest. He's the author of an incredible book you should all read called Protein Aholic, and somebody who is well steeped in the medical literature of countless studies. The conclusions drawn from his in-depth reading and direct surgical practice experience are that If we want to prevent obesity and disease, if we want to attain and maintain ideal weight management, and if we want to ultimately achieve true optimal health and long-term wellness, we're going to need to embrace our inner herbivore. So I think in one of your, I think it was in your talk that I saw recently, you said something like, you know, only 3% of the population is protein deficient. And, but, no, oh, like, I would say less than but like, but like 97% of the population is fiber deficient. And what we should be talking exactly. about is fiber and not protein.
8: Right, right. When you look at, they came out the new NHANES data and what do we actually eat in this country? No one's protein deficient. You got to understand the RDA.
0: Well, pro, a protein deficiency would be starvation. It would be starvation. Right? Like core sugars. Yeah, season. exactly. You'd have to, you would have to not be eating,
8: you'd have to be eating less than 1,000 calories to probably get it. Um, and so you, we just don't see that. Um, so the RDA, when they set up their recommendation for protein requirements, they based it on some uh, nitrogen balance studies and all this kind of stuff. And they came up with a figure, like for men, 56 grams, and for women, 44 grams or 42 grams. And that figure is actually an optimal amount. It's not a minimal amount. I think people think that's the lowest amount that I should get. It's actually the optimal amount. Based on those studies, probably you would do fine with 30 grams of protein, but they just wanted to make sure that everybody was covered. Now, we eat 70 to 100, sometimes 130 grams of protein a day. So we're way over the optimal amount. We're, mm-hmm. we're way in excess. And when all these studies where they've gone and interviewed people, the one thing everyone's looking for is even more protein. It makes, it's crazy. Yet we eat unbelievably low amounts of fiber. And there there are not a lot of good studies that show that there's long-term health in eating a lot of protein. There's tons of good studies, tons and tons, showing eating a lot of fiber is good for you long-term. And we are unbelievable. We're in a mass deficit of fiber, and yet no one's talking about that because it's not just the fiber; it's what the fiber is. Mm-hmm. You know, there's no fiber in the animal products. There's only fiber in the plant. Right. Products.
0: But if you forget, just forget about protein, yeah. and let's shift all of that focus that you had on protein and put it on fiber, right. and then see what would happen.
8: Yeah, my message would be: it's almost impossible not to get enough protein, no matter what you're eating. That's number one. Number two: eating more protein will make you sick eventually. Um. And number three, eating more plants is really like finding the fountain of youth. Um, Makes you. It's not just because people say, "Well, I don't care if I live, you know, ten years longer." If you know. I have to eat that crap. The food's delicious. It's nutritious. Your whole taste buds change. Mm
0: -hmm. That's Um, the thing I think people miss or don't get. They don't get that. And they can't imagine that they'll actually get to a place where they will desire or crave healthy foods. Yeah, I have patients say to me,
8: I wish I had your willpower. To me, it's not willpower. It's not willpower for me to eat a kale salad. I crave a kale salad. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I used to crave a double cheeseburger. And... You could change that. I could talk about how I change that with patients, but you could change the, this thought process, and you could change your taste. And everybody who goes through it, I get, I get this, you know, blessing. You know, all these people online yakking about this and that, and they've never treated a patient. I get to sit across from a patient and actually see these changes, and the changes are amazing—the way people feel, the way they look, what they're doing in their life. It's it's really rewarding. And when I think about how many people in this world. Could benefit if we just got rid of this idea of protein and went to a, the idea of, you know, whole foods, fruits, vegetables, beans. Um, it would really change the health of the country, the health of the environment, mm-hmm. and uh, and and have so many other benefits out there. I mm-hmm. personally never count, ever, never count. I never mm-hmm. think to myself I need to get protein. I'll make a post workout shake where I will throw in some hemp seeds and I'll get some protein there. I eat nuts during the day. I'll get protein there. I eat a lot of beans. And I'm only getting stronger and faster.
0: I mean, is there an argument to be made that... uh, that the protein from animal flesh is qualitatively different from the protein from plants. In other words, is an amino acid an amino acid irrespective of where it comes from or is the matrix in which, it, which it's delivered to your body, does that make a difference in, term, in terms of how you metabolize it, the bioavailability and all of that?
8: Yeah, you know, um, uh, you bring up a good point but um, the studies that have shown that bioavailability of plant-based proteins is excellent. Um, like for instance, plant-based proteins are much higher in glutamic acid. Now glutamic acid is fantastic for lowering blood pressure, mm-hmm. which might be part of the reason plants are so good with lowering blood pressure. Meat-based proteins are higher in branch chain amino acids. Now if you're a bodybuilder, this is good for several reasons. It increases IGF-1. IGF-1 is a growth hormone. So it's a growth hormone. You're going to grow your muscles. Number two, um, there are definitely uh, things like leucine definitely stimulate muscle protein synthesis. And so if you're a bodybuilder, you want to stimulate muscle protein synthesis. But here's the catch. We know from aging studies and from cancer studies that having a high IGF-1 and high leucine actually leads to premature aging and cellular death and cancer. Mm -hmm. So what I'm seeing from these bodybuilding protocols that may in fact make a bodybuilder have more muscle may make them unhealthier in the long term. I mean, it's impossible to do a good study on it, but if you look at old bodybuilders, they all have a scar down the middle of their chest. They've all had heart surgery. Now, is it the high-protein diets or is it the steroids? You know, I can't differentiate that and tell you that. Um, Definitely a heavy animal protein diet is associated with heart disease, definitely is associated with high blood pressure, and it's definitely associated with a shorter length of life. And the interesting thing about the longevity studies is we talked about, and taking out confounding factors. If you take out a lot of confounding factors, you get to the point where you're almost taking away a correlation. And yet after really rigorous statistical analysis, there's still a finding that if you eat a plant-based diet or if you eat less meat, you live longer.
0: After a lifetime, what do seasoned medical doctors have to say to incoming doctors as they pass through their medical training? Well, Dr. Michael Clapper personifies that question. Dr. Clapper is a renowned physician who spent his years treating diseases that he felt were reversible or completely avoidable. But rather than impacting single patients at a time, He shifted gears and went directly to the medical schools to lecture incoming physicians on the virtue of food as medicine. Here is Dr. Clapper. Over the course of your uh, many decade career, I'm sure you've seen diet trends and fads come and go. And, you know, it's interesting to see what sticks and what doesn't and what passes. I'm sure you've seen it all. And right now we're in a moment where we are seeing, you know, the explosion of interest in plant-based diets and the science that backs it up. In lockstep with that though, there's also a very, you know, strident growing uh, movement around low carb eating and the keto diet. And so I'm sure these questions come up all the time, especially with these students and just in general. So how do you kind of think about that and how do you communicate around those other Protocols and oh, what is my. your perspective on them?
9: Oh, my. Uh, there's another show that's so. We got time. But, all right. <laughs> we sure got plenty now. of time. Great. So. Okay.
0: Well, we'll go I mean, this it is then. like, you know, sure. listen, there's a lot Until of plant based people that listen to this show, but there's people that are on different kinds of diets. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, absolutely. And I think the reason I'm asking you this question sure. is, uh-huh. you know, for even a very well educated, motivated listener or just consumer in general. They go online, or they you know read whatever's happening, and they see the stuff about plant-based, but they also see the stuff about keto and low carb, and it's confusing. Even if you're you know going to PubMed and and reading abstracts, which almost no one does, um, it's still confusing, right? There's science to support different perspectives, and it's all very disorienting. And so I'm always trying to drive people towards. You know what is common sense here where you know what do the facts really say? what does the science really say and and what are some principles that we can hang our hat on that can guide us in a trajectory that's
9: doable in the context of our busy lives? very important of course so we'll put on our miners' cap here and and uh, <laughs> drill down uh, on this I start off um And it it starts with a a recognition on on everyone's part, how toxic the standard Western diet has Mm -hmm. become. And um, if you're especially even dabbling in fast foods at all, um, every piece of meat you eat is going to be uh, come with, with white bread and sugary ketchup and hydrogenated oils and uh, and the, the toxic load that comes uh, with, with whether it's the peaches or the burgers or the buffalo wings etc uh, and all the diets who are serious about getting people healthier whether it's paleo or keto or Plant-based, whatever. All of us, uh, we all we strip away um, that um, yeah, that outer hull of toxic. Yeah, we can foods. all we
0: can all agree that we all the agree.
9: Standard American diet, the fast food diet is bad. Indeed, yeah. and once you do that that, that step alone is a quantum leap is a huge improvement. Uh, and you reduce a huge load of refined sugars and, uh, and fats and, uh, foods that are grossly obesogenic. Uh, and as a result, uh, people, and especially the, the paleo folks strip out the dairy products as well. Uh, and, uh, as well as the oils. Uh, And when you take out the dairy, the oils and and junk flour products, uh, people are going to lose weight. And the very act of losing weight does good things in most people's bodies. Mm -hmm. And their lipid profiles get better, their diabetes gets better, they feel better, their energy level goes up. Uh, And so you see this this initial improvement in health in, in most all of these dietary styles. And it's enough to provide very powerful reinforcement. I went paleo, boy, I lost weight, felt good, man, that's the diet for me. Uh, and and I hear that with the with the keto folks as well. But as a physician and as a person who respects the biology of this, this body that we have, um, I mean, no gorilla packs its intestines full of meat two, three times a day like, like we do. Um, and having been in the medical game for so long, I have to say, wait a minute. Granted, you see this initial improvement, but I urge folks, do not be seduced by this improvement that you're seeing. Now what the reality is, you pack that colon full of meat two, three times a day, a day uh, and you send this surge of cholesterol and saturated fat and oxidized meat proteins through the tissues day after day after day as the months go by, as the years go by. This is a recipe for colon cancer, this is a recipe for artery disease, mm-hmm. this is a recipe for strokes, recipe for dementia, recipe for autoimmune disease from leaky gut. And the problem, and and I put this in my slideshow, so medicine's become very segmented, medical care has become very fractionated, very segmented. And um, the odds of you seeing the same doctor when you go back to the clinic are are small, doctors move away, patients move away. And the point is people, uh, especially these young docs, make these uh, recommendations, oh, you ought to eat paleo, you ought to eat keto. And then you never see them again. And I ask those young guys, you make these recommendations. You're going to be around in 10 years when this guy passes his first bloody stool from that colon cancer that your diet spawned. You won't even be around to see it. You're going to be around in 12 years when this lady's joints light up from the autoimmune arthritis that your diet's leaky gut gave her. You won't be around to see it. You think you've done something good for her. Um, But you're going to be around in 15 years when when this guy has a stroke from that carotid plaque that your diet stirred up in his arteries. You won't be around to see that. Uh, And And that's my concern as a seasoned physician who's been in this game a while. Now, what what are you really brewing up in these patients' colons? What are you really brewing up in their arteries? What are you really brewing up in their joints? What are you brewing up in their immune systems, in their prostate glands, in their colon, in their breast tissue? And and the folks who are making these initial uh, recommendations don't... I say, do you really know what you're doing, doctor? You know, the phrase "do no harm" applies to dietary advice as well, and you can really hurt somebody with the wrong diet. And I think a lot of wrong advice is being given. Yeah, yet. we're plant-eating creatures; <clears throat> we need to be true to that. Can you have a little piece of flesh once or twice a week? Yeah, I would probably get away with it. But but we're not Homo carnivorous. We're not flesh-eating apes, and. Uh, We're meant to run on whole plant foods. And when we do that, the body gets lean and healthy and arteries open up and inflammation subsides. And the the body has has (laughs) the final word on that. To
0: quote the esteemed Dr. Neil Bernard, quote, some foods are fattening, others are addictive. Cheese is both. If cheese were any worse, it would be Vaseline, end quote. While sugar and meat consumption across the US has declined over the past decade, how should we think about dairy in the standard American diet? Well, Dr. Bernard is here to educate us. Dr. Bernard is the president of the Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine. He's the author of more than 100 scientific publications and 20 books for medical and lay readers, several of which have been New York Times bestsellers. We have done three in-depth shows with him as he's a fountain of wisdom and practical advice in this area and beyond. So here are a couple clips that I believe you will find helpful.
10: To see the truth of it, you just have to look at a country like Japan or China, where these are non-dairy consuming countries and and they really weren't eating much meat. You know, meat was a kind of a flavoring for the rice Mm -hmm. and noodles and vegetables and so forth. And and back in 1980, diabetes was rare in Japan. It was between 1% and 5% of the adult population. Uh, McDonald's came in, fast food chains came in, meat came in in a big way, and cheese and dairy started to follow. Uh, some of the people in Japan initially and then China afterward started to say, okay, we, want, we need to drink milk so that we're strong like Americans are. And what they've gotten is diabetes rates went up to now 11 to 12% in Japan by 1990, um, diabetes is massive now in China. Cardiovascular disease—I'm talking heart disease—huge in China, and it's not because of rice, and it's not because of vegetables. But it seems it that is, it is meat and the dairy that is coming in and invading right. their diet.
0: And yet, the conventional wisdom—if you—if you—if you would ask, you know, the average person, or perhaps some of the researchers behind this study. What the, you know, what the underlying cause of that is, they're gonna to point to processed foods and sugar most likely, right?
10: Yeah, you know, um, not, sugar is not health food. That's true. That said... Um Sugar consumption in the United States has been falling for almost 20 years. It it rose, and I'm talking all sugars together, sugar, like cane sugar, beet sugar, high fructose corn syrup, throw them all in. They rose up until 1999. At that point, sugar has been falling. Sodas have been falling, um, largely because so many Americans are drinking bottled water or diet soda or whatever. Sugar is dropping, but obesity is not falling. Diabetes is not falling, and to say, and once again, sugar is not health food. But to say that is the whole problem. Mm-hmm. Um, we should all be thin now, right? Um, we should have cured diabetes by now because sugar has been falling for twenty years, but it, but it's not. So I am going to say a particular
0: amount of blame needs to go on cheese, and especially cheese. Um, when you see an ad for a Wendy's double cheeseburger, or the newest version of you know the pizza hut pizza with uh, injected cheese into the crust and all these sorts of things that actually there is a relationship between those marketing campaigns and those products and the influx of government funding so can you explain that a
10: little uh, bit because i
0: think a lot of people would be shocked to hear that
10: by law the us and this has been the case for a long time the us government by law must promote american agricultural products this is something congress in its wisdom passed a number of years ago and they promote products regardless of their health value and often in spite of their health value. So they take this pot of money and they pour it into research studies and the U.S. government did work with Wendy's uh, with a contract that I can show you to market the Wendy's cheddar lover's bacon uh-huh. cheeseburger. I'm not kidding. It sold two and a quarter million pounds of cheese. They then worked with Subway to... which Subway had two sandwiches that didn't have cheese on them. So... On contract with the U.S. government, they stuck cheese on those sandwiches. They worked with Pizza Hut to put an entire pound of cheese on one serving of pizza. They worked with Taco Bell, uh, Burger King, all the others, so that cheese was promoted, for example. Uh, You go through the drive-thru, and you can't imagine that what they say over the loudspeaker is going to be government speak. Welcome to Taco Bell. Would you like to try our quesadilla today? Mm -hmm. You know, they don't say you want a strawberry smoothie or something. You know, it's like something cheesy. And so these are all done on contract. We got them through the Freedom of Information. So like those we were talking totally
0: points away. are like upsells that are specifically kind of inserted into the talking points that that person at the fast food restaurant is sort of told this is how you communicate with the customer. Yeah, that was part of it. The government has supplied advisors to McDonald's. I'm talking about people
10: going to McDonald's headquarters and advising them on their business practices. I mean, don't you think every computer manufacturer would like to have the government promoting their product? Uh, well, for some, it, it's, it's wrong. It should stop. Um, but that's where we are. We live in a country which... If this were a Latin American country, you could imagine drugs, it kind of uh, infusing uh, the, uh, in, their influence in the government. Well, right. here it's agricultural products doing the same kind of thing. People are promoting cheese. They're saying, don't worry about it, it has no effect. Cheese comes from milk. Milk comes from a cow who is pregnant. The cows, the cows, don't, give, cows don't give milk at all, but they don't make milk until they have been impregnated, they give birth, and then the milk that their calf was gonna get goes to the dairy. Um, a, a cow pregnancy is about nine months, similar to human pregnancy, and they're impregnated every year. So what that means, three quarters of their lives they are pregnant. They are being milked during that time. The estrogen that the cow makes gets into the milk, and, and it's just—it's not much, it's only a trace. But the milk is turned into cheese, the, the hormones go with the fat, and the average person eats 35 pounds of it every year. Mm-hmm. So researchers in Rochester, New York, Look, looked at men, the men who ate the most cheese had the worst sperm counts, the worst sperm morphology, the lowest sperm motility. In other words, they're... Because in, of the estrogen in, in, content in, of that. Well, that's the theory. The theory is, is you're consuming just little traces of estrogen with your breakfast on your egg McMuffin, the little cheese, and a little bit more at lunch, and quite a lot at dinner on your pizza. And could those little traces of estrogens matter? Now, we, we had all thought couldn't be. But the, I got to tell you, Rich, here's the worst. Um... Here in California, researchers looked at women who had been diagnosed with breast cancer. And uh, if you've you've had breast cancer in the past and you were treated for it, your concern is, is my cancer going to come back? Mm -hmm. Of course. Well, the women who consumed the most cheese had a 49% higher breast cancer mortality compared to the women who eat the least. Mm -hmm. And the, the difference is small. The difference is one daily serving or more, less than a half a serving a day. So the women who eat little or no cheese and and other high fat dairy products, it's cheese, it's butter, uh, that's where the hormones go. You compare to these low cheese consumers, the ones who eat one or more servings a day, which is not a lot, the increased risk was 49%. I'm talking about risk of dying of your cancer. So again, the amounts of hormones are small, but it raises the question, do you want to feed any kind of dairy? I'm talking about cow's milk, goat milk, whatever. Do you want to feed it to your six-year-old daughter or your six-year-old son or your wife or your husband or yourself or anybody? And, And my thought is that the dairy products are this cultural aberration that has stuck because people get hooked on it, but it has nothing to do with human biology, and we should be avoiding it.
0: Here's a quote. Outside of an emergency medical condition that requires an urgent intervention... I have never seen anything come close to providing the breadth and depth of benefits that the plant-based lifestyle offers," end quote. That quote is from my next guest, Dr. Robert Osfeld, a summa cum laude graduate of the University of Pennsylvania with a medical degree from Yale and a master's in epidemiology from Harvard. Here is a deep dive into more on his perspective.
11: There's this thing that I like to do called um, the kale scan, and mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so we've all, we're all familiar with cat scans, you know, where they do a big radiologic picture looking at looking for a problem in your body, whether it's in the chest or the belly or something like that. Well, I thought, wouldn't it be cool if we could do a kale scan, which instead of looking for a problem, could look for ways that a plant-based diet might be beneficial for you. Um, And so I looked through uh, some of the studies and so like we were talking about, a healthier diet doesn't just point to heart disease. So if I could, I'll I'll go through the the CAL scan and Mm -hmm. and these are things that a plant-based diet has been associated, not necessarily unequivocally proven, but just other things pointing in the right direction associated with improving. So first of all, it's been associated with less mortality, less death. And so I'll start from the top down. Many of us are on social media, on Facebook, we were talking about Facebook just Mm -hmm. before. So a lot of us saw the ice bucket challenge. While a plant-based diet, elements of that have been associated with less ALS, less stroke, less depression, less cognitive decline over time, uh, less Alzheimer's, um, improved skin complexion, less acne. In fact, some investigators su- suggest that um, acne is so tightly linked to the Western diet, that it's not actually a vestige of teenage angst, but actually your body crying out for help from lack of nutrition. Hmm. Fewer ear infections, less periodontal disease, less laryngeal cancer, less heartburn, less lung disease, less lung cancer, less breast cancer, less heart disease, of course, less obesity. And the former Surgeon General, uh, Dr. Carmona, said that this generation will be the first to live fewer years than its parents because of sequelae of obesity. Mm -hmm. 70% of our population is overweight or obese. Um, Less high blood pressure, we call high blood pressure the silent killer because you don't feel it, but it can kill you. And it's important that all listeners get screened for Mm -hmm. high blood pressure. But now there's a statistic that I read that blows my mind. If you're a 55-year-old adult in the U.S., your lifetime risk of developing heart disease is about 90%. And that's based on information from the Framingham Heart Study. And every time I read it, I have to reread it. It's just so high. That's unbelievable. And But if you eat a plant-based diet, you are anything but the average adult. And, you know, for example, blueberries can lower blood pressure. Um, there's less diabetes. Uh, there's less colon cancer, less inflammation, less constipation, less um prostate cancer uh associated with less um uh, prostatic hypertrophy and so guys may recognize that of having to wake up four or five times at the night during the night to pee cuz i can't pee all the urine out mm-hmm. cuz the prostate's big improved sexual function in men and women and we call of course erectile dysfunction the canary in the coal mine for heart disease And getting an erection is a psychological event, it's a neurologic event, and it's a vascular event. And by the time you have a blockage in the artery to the penis, because the artery to the penis is smaller than that to the heart, and by the time you have a blockage in the artery to the penis... Giving erectile dysfunction, it's, it's extremely likely you have such blockages in your heart that just have not yet clinically manifested. Right,
0: your body's just trying to tell you that you have something that you need to deal with. Exactly. And, right. and, and the solution is not to take a small blue pill so that you can forget about it, but rather to do the opposite, which is to heat it and try to you know, take a look at what you're eating and how you're moving your body and maybe make some changes. Totally agree. So when I look at, I mean, a couple of observations. First of all, it's, you know, thank you for that rundown. I mean, it's so compelling. And when I hear that, and I think, you know, I put it in context of, you know, heart disease is America's number one killer. And thinking of that study and the 90% figure, it's just astonishing. And I wonder, why isn't everybody, you know, doing this? Like, what is the impediment to people adopting this. And you know, that's the that's the sort of frustration that, that I experienced and kind of what I was getting at with the people that are out there trying to, you know, sort of debunk the China study or poo-poo the, you know, the the the, the fantastic benefits of eating a plant-based diet. So when you see that, whether it's on Facebook or, you know, some blog on the internet or right. whatever, like how do you You know, what do you do? What is that? How does that make you feel? What do you think?
11: Well, it's very frustrating to me um, having some background in in some of the science of it, and and we're ramping up our research arm of our wellness program too. And but I I think that people oftentimes like to have the behaviors that they're doing, whether they be good or bad, reinforced. People Mm kind of like to get praise for bad habits. Yeah, you know, eating that animal product, yeah, that's great for you. Go for it.
0: Right now, at least 50 million people worldwide live with Alzheimer's disease and rates could exceed 150 million people by 2050. Incredible. So how should we think about brain function on a plant-based diet? Can we prevent neurodegeneration through the choices that we make around our diet and lifestyle? And what are the best foods to boost brain function? These questions are best answered by Drs. Dean and Aisha Shurze, the leading neurology team in the country studying Alzheimer's disease as their life mission. Directors of the Alzheimer's Prevention Program at Loma Linda University Medical Center, this amazing husband and wife team deliver two clips that address these questions head on.
6: All of the genes involved in Alzheimer's, except for those 3% or three genes, all are lifestyle genes. How your lifestyle affects those genes, which means you have control over it. Even the most benign studies, the ones that had minimal effect, the mind study and others. Mind study just looked at diet, very well done study. Just a, a diet adjustment reduced your risk of Alzheimer's by 53%. Wow. And that was mm-hmm. a watered down version of the diet we think is optimal.
0: Uh, water, and how, how, how long would you need to be, you know, eating and eating in that certain way leading up to it?
6: It varies from person yeah. to person, their, their background, other things like if they had multiple head traumas, uh, childbirth, like multiple variables. Mm-hmm. But in reality, if you're on that diet for several years, you continually reduce your risk. Like smoking, if you've smoked all your life and if you come off of smoking, come off of that bacon, I've come off of that, uh, you know, yeah. uh, well, let's, then the more years you pass, I believe in smoking, it's after five years? Five to
12: seven five years. Five to yes. seven years,
6: you're mm-hmm. back to baseline. right? Mm-hmm. Meaning that you're back to the lowest risk factor. Um, so the longer you stay on a healthy lifestyle, which is exercise and, and all the things that we say, and especially if you do all of them, the reason I say all of them, let's coming back to our grandparents,
3: mm-hmm.
6: one of the elements is cognitive reserve or what the term you and I love, idea density. You know, we say that if we have a a musical band, that's gonna be called idea density. They had idea density, yes. (laughs) It's a a Mm -hmm. great, great um, uh, concept. They both, both our grandparents had immense idea density and, and philosophers, thinkers, but they succumbed to Alzheimer's, why? The other elements weren't taken care of. They had diabetes, cholesterol, high blood pressure, Quite horrible food. Quite mm. sedentary,
12: bad food. Mm-hmm. Didn't yeah.
0: exercise philosophers are not supposed to exercise for some yeah. reason, but so you have to do all of it. Right, so we're gonna get into these lifestyle interventions, but before we do that, I, I, let's talk about the brain more generally. Um, we sort of think of the brain as this mysterious black box mm-hmm. that is unknowable and Something that sits outside of our body, right? Like there's our body, and then there's our brain. And these things don't really overlap. But in truth, brain health is really uh, it, it's about vascular health in the same way that heart health is, right? Like yes. we're dealing with I don't know how many zillions of of you know arteries that are going into yes. going into the brain. you know, you know putting things in your brain and taking them out, et cetera um, and and when you think about you know heart disease, we we all know we're trying to not have plaque in our arteries and keep those pipes running clean mm-hmm. and brain health is really not that different, is right.
12: it? That's very true now you but you put it beautifully. Um, When when you look at the brain, it's about three pounds, it's like jello, it's like hard jello when you hold it in your hands. And it's about 2% of your body's energy. And when you look at the tissues and the vessels, they're the same vessels that are in your heart and in your Mm -hmm. kidney and your body. I'm a vascular neurologist, so I teach a lot of anatomy to medical students and residents about the vasculature of the brain. But basically, you you have arteries shooting from your heart, going through the neck. There's two major ones in the front, the carotid arteries and the vertebral arteries. Arteries, and these are the major vessels that take blood to your brain. And there's just branching of these arteries and somebody actually calculated this, but if you put the vessels uh, in your brain end to end, it would span about 400 miles. Uh-huh. So just imagine all of these tiny hairline arteries, taking in oxygen and nutrients to these susceptible areas of the brain for this, this incredible organ, organ to function. And at any moment, our brain as little and as small as it is, it can consume up to 25% of the body's energy. So just imagine the amount of work that it does. And if we don't address vascular health, and if we don't really take care of it, it, it will succumb to disease. You know, we, we always say, and our cardiologist friends don't really like that, but we say the rest of the body is there to carry the brain. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it essentially comes down to the same pathological processes that affect the brain that also affects the heart, the kidneys and the other systems as well.
0: So let's look at the foods that, that are beneficial. Like when you look at the, the plant kingdom, what stands out? You know, I know we, we wanna stay away from quote unquote superfoods, but some foods are better than mm-hmm. others. Like what should people focus on who are trying to enhance their brain health?
12: Yeah, I think um, if if I had to give a quick version of a uh of what's out there um, as far as data is concerned, um, consumption of green leafy vegetables, for example, seems to be very helpful. And it's like unanimous results that you see across different studies. Um, uh, berries such as blueberries and strawberries, they stand out whether it's the mind diet or the Mediterranean diet or even in the Adventist health study, because these are foods that have the highest amount of anti-inflammatories, spices like turmeric. We actually mm-hmm. wrote a paper in, uh, when we were in Cedar sinai where we gave our patients high doses of turmeric and turmeric seems to have the curcumin part of it is a very potent anti-inflammatory and it seems to bind with amyloid, which is the bad protein associated with Alzheimer's disease and it it, it removes it. Oh, wow. And we measured um, the amount of um, amyloid, the amyloid load in retina and after giving them high amounts of turmeric, we actually saw the turmeric binding to the amyloid in the retina which is really, really interesting and we're learning more about it as we speak. Um, and uh, uh Yeah, so high fiber, green leafy vegetables and berries and spices, especially turmeric seems to be on the top.
6: Chi and flaxseed. Chi and flaxseed are amazing
12: sources of plant-based omega-3 fatty acids, hemp seeds, nuts like walnuts, um, whole grains. Um, they seem to have the right kind of micronutrients, whether it's thiamine or riboflavin or folic acid bound beautifully synergistically supporting each other's absorbance and uh, bioavailability. They all tend to reduce the risk for Alzheimer's Mm. disease. And we have studies that have looked at individual foods and risk of Alzheimer's disease and the combination thereof too.
0: Are there any plant foods to
12: avoid? I would say the plant foods to avoid seems to be coconut oil. I know that that again is Mm. a controversial area, and a lot of people are just yeah. (laughs) A lot of people love coconut. I know. I'm sorry, (laughs) but you know, I I love. Well, that used to
0: be the thing: (laughs) coconut oil for brain health. Yeah, I know.
12: And unfortunately, the data was pretty flawed when it came out. It was based um, on a couple of uh, case studies, and it. As it happened, somebody gave their loved ones some coconut oil and they seemed to improve, but then there was no long-term follow-up. But coconut oil, and I'm happy to say that there's consensus on it. And you know, as a scientist, I want to look at different sources of data, uh-huh. whether it's clinical trials, whether it's epidemiological, whether it's case series, and there's consensus between different scientists and doctors and physicians that um, coconut oil seems to increase our bad cholesterol, LDL, which can result into vascular damage. And um, the reason being is because coconut oil is one of the few plant oils that is more than 90% saturated fat, Mm -hmm. and so is palm oil.
0: Dr. Joel Kahn is an esteemed cardiologist who's authored hundreds of articles on heart disease and has performed thousands of cardiac procedures. Dr. Kahn was a featured contributor to the documentary, What the Health, and has been a guest on this show three times. I asked Dr. Kahn what the results might be if we were to introduce a fasting mimicking process to a plant-based diet. What he shares is astounding and further illustrates the unique power and healing capabilities of plant foods. Dr. Kahn references research by longevity experts like Dr. Walter Longo, and he brilliantly summarizes for us the benefits of adding intermittent fasting to a plant-based lifestyle. So take a listen.
5: Could we mimic fasting but still eat? Mm -hmm. Provocative, crazy idea. Could we create a diet that doesn't have the components that food causes that accelerates the mTOR pathway, the PK pathway, these pathways that accelerate aging and um, uh, destruction of cells. Can we create a diet that lets you eat some um, and can we actually still benefit from what fasting seems to do, which is uh, uh, accelerate a process, a fancy word, autophagy, the clearing of damaged cells to allow them to function better. That process, real quickly, that won the Nobel Prize last year, autophagy is like the hot button right now of anti-aging, mm-hmm. um, that if you eliminated every case of heart disease, cancer, and diabetes, we'd extend human life by 13 years. If we could end damage to cells and um, improve the efficiency of autophagy to take your cells that are aging and restore them to a youthful state, would extend human life by 30 years. So the research is going now in this anti-aging world. And he created, bottom line, a diet that five days in a row of, in the human experience, 800 calories a day, of a plant-based diet low in sugar and low in protein, but um, containing whole food fats like olives and nuts and containing moderate complex carbohydrates so that the carbohydrate uh, calorie loads about 35% that he found in animal models and in a study published February 2017 in 100 humans that you could see the responses you get with a complete fast, but you don't have the pain of a complete fast. You don't have the risk of a complete fast. He called that and patented that FMD, fasting mimicking diets. Um, And he has shown that not only do they favor losing visceral fat around your belly, which is what so many people are doing 10-day belly bloats, five days in a row in a month, and you can do it as many months in a row as you can tolerate and all. And we're talking about eating a nut bar for breakfast. We're talking about eating soup and kale crackers for lunch. We're talking about eating soup um, and occasionally a little cacao bar for dinner. These actually come prepackaged in a startup that he uh, engaged in with the University of Southern California. That doing that five days in a row activates these primal Pathways that actually not only favor improved metabolism, losing visceral fat. You don't lose muscle mass, which is fantastic, but you actually lower IGF-1 levels, which is one of the goals. And lastly, you actually create a flood of stem cells from your bone marrow into your bloodstream. Mm -hmm. Stem cells that people are going to Tijuana and paying a ton of money for, that will go to injured and damaged parts of your body and clear out damaged cells. So there's data now in animals and some human data that multiple sclerosis may be responsive to a five-day fasting mimicking diet of plants low in sugar, low in fat, that actually brain growth occurs in animal models. And right now, cognition is being studied in Italy using Dr. Longo's five-day fasting diet. Uh, In addition to just weight loss, that um, cancer patients, it's called chemo-leave, it's a product they've developed and not released, yet. it's being studied at the Mayo Clinic and other places, that if you're getting chemotherapy and you do this fasting-mimicking diet, um, and use plants and use low-sugar, low-fat, you actually get a better kill rate for the chemotherapy and you get less side effects, profound data. Athletes are being studied in Verona, Italy right now to see if this enhances performance, if it will enhance recovery and allow you to go back and do the next athletic event with more uh, success. So several hundred worldwide studies using this exact model. I would describe it, it's a plant-based cyclical ketogenic diet cyclical because it's five days a month and it's plants so it's not the extreme of what you're seeing on the, on the blogosphere uh, it's the plants and the plant proteins that don't seem to activate aging like animal-based protein um, and it's 800 calories a day it's not water fasting uh, so um, there are people shouldn't do it underweight people pregnant people brittle diabetics brittle heart patients 800 calories a day. I, I've done it seven of the last 11 months. I'm down 25 pounds. Wow. I have boundless energy. My labs show improvement. My blood pressure shows improvement. I have dozens of patients who have had the same experience. And, you know, what do you do with a heavy vegan who's really doing it right? You've got to change your metabolism. And this is one of the hacks that might, uh, you know, allow our movement one, to have the scientific basis to say we're in the right sector of the food plate, and two, to actually help people get more out of it than they're getting because not everybody eating a whole-food, plant-based diet with oil, without oil, is going to achieve their optimal blood pressure, blood sugar, and weight, and uh, we need more tools, and this is one of the tools.
0: The American College of Cardiology, a more than 50,000 member medical society is the professional home base for the entire cardiology profession. And five years ago, I sat down with its former president, Dr. Kim Williams. Dr. Williams is one of the most inspiring, the most intelligent and pioneering leaders in the growing movement to modernize how we think, treat, and hopefully prevent heart disease, which is still our most onerous threat to human health. One out of three people in America dies from cardiovascular disease. It is and remains our number one killer, and it's still the number one killer of cardiologists. Plants are the solution, and no masterclass would be complete without the words of those who know best. So in his own words, here is Dr. Kim Williams.
13: Last year was the first time in 40 years that cardiovascular disease deaths in the country went up, mm-hmm. and that is just something that we just can't abide by. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they you know, we, are, we are, we're always bragging about this decreasing curve. It's about 50 percent over 40 years in cardiovascular mortality, and it's bypass surgery and statins and beta-bloggers and AIDS and all these medications for heart failure and decreasing sudden death because we put in defibrillators that shock people when they, when they have a, a fatal arrhythmia and they come back to life. And we were so proud of all this stuff. And then the American population somehow has overcome
14: <laughs> an end run around
0: <laughs> this, no matter what you do. <laughs> exactly. Yeah.
13: And when the CDC put those numbers out there, they said it was obesity and diabetes that's driving it and that's a nutrition. And so it all the fundamental uh, issue that we've been dealing with, with for the last so many years is really at the core of all we, we do, and it will uproot and, and undo any success that, that we can do uh, with devices and medications.
0: Yeah, it's got to be a shift in priorities and focus, because it is amazing to reduce by 50% the mortality rate of people who are suffering from heart disease, as a result of all this amazing science and technology, right. uh, but if that comes at the cost of really addressing the fact that the incidence of people who are, you know, you know, becoming patients in the first place, right. then you're you're waging a losing
13: war. Yep. Well, right? ultimately, yeah, everyone's going to get older and they're going to pass away at some point. Wouldn't it be nice if we were uh, as healthy as possible until that happened and and not uh, have these chronic diseases that are completely avoidable mm-hmm. um, by uh, by lifestyle. A lot of the publications weren't out there in two thousand and three, but the data is out there now. Animal protein is bad for you. Heme iron is bad for you. um the cholesterol, the i g f one and the uh, animal protein, this is this is all science. And so the difference is now I read it. Now, the other major controversy, which I probably shouldn't repeat one more time, but I guess I'm gonna do it, uh, was making that comment, which was completely half-joking, but I was making a statement um, uh, about cardiovascular research and the fact that nutrition research is typically in the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition. It's not in uh, the Journal of American College of Cardiology so much. And so it's not in front of the cardiologists. And so I made that statement Again, more than half joking. The
0: statement that that two, that kinds, of two kinds of cardiologists. Yeah, <laughs> right. why don't
13: you you say it? <laughs> right, two kinds of cardiologists: vegans and those who haven't read the data.
0: Uh-huh. Now, I <laughs> got uh, you into a little trouble. It, yeah,
13: it, it did. Well, the uh-huh. interesting part is that uh, you know it, it's with, like 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 they say, if you take the text out of the context then all you're left with is the con. And mm-hmm. so people were misunderstanding. I thought I'm throwing all my colleagues under the bus when I'm really claiming or asking for more research, more review articles, more, you know, more data to go into cardiology journals so that people are actually seeing it and they can influence the, their lives and their patients. Uh, but then two things started to happen. One is uh, the, you know the pushback from that. Uh, was actually, I think most people understood that I was saying that if they know me at all, if they don't know me, they they right. wouldn't say anything to me. If they did know me, they knew that I was, you know, saying that in mm-hmm. a joke in a jocular manner. Um, but there were some people who took it seriously, uh, particularly at Rush, where you know I'm the chief of cardiology, right. and we now have uh, you know nine vegan cardiologists because wow. people looked at the data and they saw that you know this is probably something I shouldn't be eating, and they've they've uh, changed their own lifestyle, which is wonderful because it gives us a good cadre of people who work on prevention. The other thing that happened, though, uh, I have to say, is that. Um, I'd spent six years on the uh, American Board of Internal Medicine doing the cardiology exam uh, and then the ACC uh, leadership position. So I'm seeing a lot of cardiologists. Um, then my time at the American Society of nuclear cardiology, I was president 12 years ago. Mm-hmm. Each one of those organizations has had some luminary person who died of heart disease. And I'm kind of saying... That's where we really need to start. That is, in order to fix the population through all the powers of our accha guidelines, the, the people who are actually getting that data out there and putting it in the hands of patients and the prescriptions and telling people what, how they should live is cardiology. So at this point, I've had an, enough of the sudden cardiac deaths. Uh, I'm actually, my, my new goal is to not retire until the leading cause of death and cardiologists is no longer heart disease
0: and so yeah, it's amazing that it it precipitates at that level yeah. amongst you know amongst your peers exactly. you know on some level it's like you can't transmit something you haven't got like if you're if you're not living this life in a certain way where you're you know where you're an embodiment of the message that you're promoting that's inherently problematic
13: right so mm-hmm. i it, it really has affected me in terms of uh, the, the guilt when one of my friends would pass mm-hmm. away you know, they knew that I was eating different. I I ate with them. They knew that I was eating different. And did I say anything? Hmm. And did I say it loud enough? And so now any quip that I can come up with that gets on (laughs) my page today or Twitter, I'm I'm fine with. Uh, I'll take the backlash if it's going to save some of my colleagues' lives. Ultimately, that will help our country. Uh, yeah. That will help uh, uh, reduce this this terrible epidemic of, of heart disease, even if it makes me unpopular. Nutrition is the most important decision that we can make. If we could uh, change one thing, it would be to have heart-healthy information coming out and, and have that be a real definition. Um, and so for the individual patient, finding out where they are and seeing what are the elements that are going to create more, more and more diseases uh, similar to what brought them to my office in the first place. And, uh, and I, I understand that this, this is not primary care, this is mm-hmm. not family practice not, you know these are people who already have heart disease when they're seeing me. And so I have a little easier job because they're already motivated. The fact that they're in my office means that they're motivated to try to make some kind of change. They're expecting to come out of there with something different uh, that's going to change their outcome. Um, not every physician has that uh, uh, advantage, but it's something that we all should take advantage of because you know almost everyone has had a, you know, a family member who suffers from heart disease or has had heart disease or has sudden cardiac death. And so just trying to get them to understand that there is a relationship between your lifestyle and your outcome. Just make that connection. If we could do that, uh, we would all be so so much better off. Right.
0: A whole food plant-based lifestyle is also a recalibration of our relationship with things like salt, oil, and sugar. Modern food additives that spike dopamine and can create all sorts of problems. So how do we reframe our often dysfunctional relationship with food so that we are never again a victim of addictive behaviors? Well, taking us through this complex issue is Dr. Alan Goldhammer, co-author of the book, The Pleasure Trap. Here's an excerpt from one of our all-time most popular episodes. The social
14: roadblocks to health are probably some of the limiting factors. I think that's probably true in all addiction though. You know, one of the challenges for people with alcohol is oftentimes the social consequences uh, of not participating. And this is definitely true with food. We've built so much of our social interaction around food that even, even if you're looking to just modify the type of food you eat, it can be very upsetting for mm-hmm. people and they can get really defensive about
0: it. Right, so let's talk a little bit more about the pleasure trap specifically, what that is, you co-authored this book, seminal work with, with Doug Lyle, I've seen his TED talk, I've seen him give his presentation many times on this subject and that really you know, elucidates this dysfunctional relationship with food and, and why it is from an evolutionary and, and psychological perspective. Well, you know, there's
14: this idea of dopamine is a neurochemical associated with pleasure, and there's two behaviors critical for human beings' survival and that is food and sex. Mm. You have to get enough to eat in order to be able to sustain yourself and you have to engage in enough sexual behavior so that you can pass on your genes and the whole process can start over again. So it's not surprising that food and sex are heavily reinforced. And the way the the brain reinforces the body's behavior is by rewarding us with dopamine, Mm. which is the neurochemical associated with pleasure. So the more dopamine, the more pleasure. The more dopamine, the better the food tastes. And so you react to food in response to largely caloric density. The higher the caloric density, the more valuable it is in this environment of scarcity in which we evolved. And so the higher caloric density foods are tend to be more reinforced, more dopamine, better tasting. So what we've done as humans, we're innovative creatures we said oh if a little good a lot's better Mm -hmm. let's figure out a way to make the food taste even more special by increasing its caloric density and we do that by adding things like oil and sugar to the food and as a consequence we like it better and if that's what you get used to eating that's all you like and eventually people get to the point they really don't like the taste of simple whole natural foods anymore because this hyper-drug-like stimulating effect of the more concentrated foods is more appealing. So we literally become addicted. For example, if you want to neuro-adapt to a lower salt or lower fat diet, it actually takes time in order for the body to go through that adaptation. We can speed it up with fasting, but the bottom line is there is a period of adaptation where food doesn't taste good. If you eat whole foods and you're used to eating highly processed foods, it's not that appealing. Now over time you adapt, and then the body gets to the point where you like mm. the simpler foods
0: again. Yeah, pe- people have a hard time believing that you adapt. There's this baked-in assumption that you're 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 just going to you're looking you're staring down the pipeline of a lifetime of drab foods that are unappealing and you're just going to have to tolerate it. Um,
14: we know there's a literature on this though with, for example, sodium, uh, people use on high sodium diet, it takes about a month on a low sodium diet for the average person to neuroadapt to a lower salt diet. You know, with fat, it takes almost three months. Wow. It takes three months on a lower fat diet before that satiety mechanism that's used to being kicked in by the higher caloric density fat begins to adapt and you will feel satisfied on a lower, uh, uh, mm-hmm. density foods, so the, the fruits, the vegetables, or grains, the goons. you will now feel satisfied. Whereas initially you don't because you're used to being satiated with these high fat, uh, this high fat intake and that, t- that can take months. And yeah. so it's a problem if you say to a person, well, look, you're gonna eat this new diet, you're gonna feel like crap and you're not gonna like it, and, but it'll only be a few months, right. uh, adherence may, may be lagging. Whereas if you can make that process happen more quickly, the ability to get people to make dietary changes speeds up and that's what we found with fasting and sometimes that's a way of getting people to the point where good food tastes good more quickly. Yeah. What we're encouraging people to do is a really radical departure from what they're currently doing but that's to adopt a whole plant food diet that's free of this added chemicals, free of the salt, oil and sugar. And what you're left with is things like fruits and vegetables, raw or cooked. Um, minimally processed greens, beans, nuts, and seeds. But you don't have the meat, fish, fowl, eggs, dairy products, oil, salt, sugar, and highly processed fractionated foods that make up the majority of the people's diet in industrialized society. And it's that diet that makes them fat and sick and develop the diseases of dietary excess and that's what makes you vulnerable to con- uh, infectious disease. You know, when you look at what are the vulnerabilities, about why do some people get uh, an influenza or a COVID or uh, an infectious disease and, you know, they recover they survive they have minimal consequence other people it's devastating or deadly well if you look at the risk factors associated with what makes people vulnerable to these diseases as well as the disease the chronic diseases the heart disease the cancer the stroke it's the same metabolic syndrome and all of its associations yeah. it's the same obesity and diabetes and high blood pressure and all the consequences of dietary excess these are reversible and preventable conditions People don't have to have these conditions. And even if they have them, they can largely reverse them by taking responsibility to control what they put in their mouth.
0: Okay, we did it. I hope this masterclass was valuable and actionable for you. And as we conclude this deep dive into the plant-powered lifestyle, I wanna acknowledge that In some cases, for a variety of reasons, not everyone can or will make the pivot to a 100% whole food plant-based lifestyle. And if that is you, you'll find no judgment here. What I would like to submit, however, is that intentionally creating small goals for yourself toward moving away from an ultra processed food-based diet and adding more plant foods to your plate could be transformative for your health for your energy, for your performance, and for your longevity. That has been my experience, and that has been the testimony of the experts collected here today. It's my hope that this masterclass has helped you on your journey, or could be used as a way of helping a loved one. And if you have been personally inspired, please consider visiting the full in-depth conversations with these esteemed guests. You can find links to each episode posted in the YouTube description or in the show notes at richroll.com. Thank you for listening. Thank you for watching. And please know that I'm wishing all of you the greatest life possible powered by as many plants as possible. Until next time, peace, plants.